So um, I don't know how this happened, but I got a cold over the last 24 hours. So <clears throat> I'm a little affected by cold medicine. So if I get a little bit kind of, you know, loopy, just bear with me. And uh, if I have to stop and get a cough drop or drink water again, I apologize. I don't know how that happens. Always happens in Vegas. There's something in the air. So um, I've been speaking on multidisciplinary pain management pretty much all of my career in pain medicine, and I've uh, been a nurse practitioner in pain medicine for over 15 years. Uh, I work at Stanford uh, Healthcare, uh, so we have a big multidisciplinary uh, team consistent of pain psychologists, physical therapists, acupuncturists, nutritionists. And when I talk to audience members nationally, they look at me and they say, yes, well, it's all fine and good that you tell us we need to do this, and it's great that you have all these services available, but, you know, I don't live in the Bay Area. I live in Chico, or I live in Modesto, or I live middle of the country, and either my patients don't have access to it because of insurance purposes, or we just don't have those providers. So that was the inspiration for this talk. Here are my disclosures, uh, none of which are pertinent to this lecture today. I also have to disclose that it's a very dense slide deck, and I purposely put it together that way, mostly so you have resources that you can take back into your communities. Um, some of the slides I'll go through really quickly. Others will uh, spend more time on. But realize that if we go through slides quickly, it's not because I don't think that the information is important. It's more just for your background and your reference as you go back out into practice. The other disclosure, final disclosure, is um, I, I picked the most um, colorful shirt that was in my closet because I figured it would be good for a 7 a.m. lecture. Hopefully the glitter will kind of keep you awake in it and, uh, and it won't, uh, you won't fall asleep during this lecture this morning. So these are our objectives. We're going to define and discuss multidisciplinary pain management. We're going to talk about the available resources that are in the community that you have access to and your patients have access to. They just probably don't know it. So by your education today, you can introduce them to it. And we're going to talk about ways that you can help your patients, motivate your patients to participate in active self-management. Because really, it's about engaging the patient in their health care. You're a partner. You're a facilitator. But you're not expected to do it all. Any lecture on pain management needs to start with just defining terms. So we're going to briefly spend some time on this, these next few slides. And it's important to define terms just so we're on a common language. So later on in the lecture, when I mention something, you're like, oh, yes, that's, you know, that's what that means. So the difference between acute and chronic pain, acute pain, short duration, um, expected, uh, time limited, usually as a response to injury, uh, known injury, surgery, uh, trauma, and um, often responsive to opiates and is self-limiting, will get better as tissues heal. Chronic persistent pain is a different disease entity all on itself. Do not fall asleep on me. I don't know why he did that so, so the dark. Um, so... It's Vegas. You just you never know what's going to happen. So um, chronic persistent pain, by definition, three months or longer, um, outlasts its protective benefit, becomes a pathological disease unto itself, associated with a lot of comorbidities such as depression, anxiety, poor sleep, uh, a lot of dysfunction associated with that. And then breakthrough or flare pain. And this is the pain that's most problematic, really, in managing patients because it's the most fear-provoking. So being able to talk to patients not only about how to manage their acute pain and their chronic pain, but really have skills to deal with uh, managing their breakthrough pain. 
nociceptive pain, normal pain response, again, usually um, self-limiting. It's uh, that pain that patients describe as localized, achy, deep, throbbing, uh, pain associated with musculoskeletal um, disease processes, uh, osteoarthritis, visceral pain, um, focused more on organs, deep abdominal-type pain, cholecystitis, crampy pain. And then neuropathic pain, which is when it becomes chronic and and long-term or recurrent, is a... uh, usually related to an injury in the central nervous system. So it can either be centrally mediated or peripherally generated. So examples of uh, symptoms that patients will report to you with neuropathic pain is sharp, burning, lancinating, itching. Those are some of the characteristics of neuropathic pain. You can have centrally mediated uh, neuropathic, chronic neuropathic pain, such as in disease states um, like complex regional pain syndrome, spinal cord injury, stroke pain, and then peripherally uh, generated with your poly or your um, mononeuropathy, such as diabetic peripheral neuropathy or um, lumbar radiculopathy. All right. What is multidisciplinary pain management, multimodal pain management? Simply, it's incorporating all of the different types of discipline to treat the symptoms that, that I just mentioned to you that are associated with chronic pain. So depression, anxiety, behavioral management, use of nutrition, um, guidance, physical therapy, self-guidance in terms of movement. And it sounds common sense, but really when you're in a practice and you have 15 minutes to see a patient and they come in with all of these complaints, I can't sleep, poor uh, sexual performance, I don't have interest in doing any things in my life, I'm depressed because I can't go to work, then, you know, it can be overwhelming for a clinician. It's not okay just to say, well, I'm going to write you a pill and a prescription for a medication, and then we'll see if that's enough for you. Uh, so we really, we really if, if you look at the trend in pain management over the last decade, it's really moved towards multidisciplinary care because it's the only way that you're going to be able to meet the needs of the patient to actually get better, right? So it's a chronic disease management, but you want patients to get to a chronic, to a uh, state in life where they're having um, worthwhile, meaningful experiences, able to interact with family, interact with peers, just get on with their lives. So that's all good and fine. So why don't we do it? Why aren't we doing that now? Why is that not standard of care? Well, it it has to do with factors related to clinicians being unable to really um, make that transition and, and, and have the, the time and the resources and the knowledge to be able to bring that kind of care to their patients. But then there's also patient barriers. I don't have time to exercise. I don't have time to meditate. I don't have time to go on the internet and watch that video that you showed me um, to watch. Uh, I don't have transport. I can't get, I don't know how to use public transport. I don't know how to get to the places that I need to get to to um, engage in some of these other uh, services. Knowledge, obviously, if the patients don't know that there's other ways of managing their pain or they don't have a concept of multidisciplinary care, then they can't engage in it and they can't even ask you about it. Um, Although patients are becoming very savvy, there's particularly with chronic disease states such as fibromyalgia, complex regional pain syndrome, there's a lot of good patient advocacy um, groups out there, blog sites. So patients are getting more savvy 
So you don't want your patient coming to you and saying, what about X? Can you help me with X? And you have no idea what X is. Uh, and then fear, right? Fear of movement, fear of, sometimes fear of what it means to get better, right? So now I'm feeling better, and, and maybe I have more responsibilities um, to do things that I couldn't do before because I was in pain, and now what does that mean, right? So the fear of actually getting better, and that's behavioral management. That's psychology, right? So do you have to bring in your mental health providers to help patients? And then the dreaded insurance coverage, right? We all use that as an excuse, both clinicians as well as patients, to not even um, think about using multidisciplinary treatment modalities. This was a study that was published by Mann and Associates just last year in pain management nursing. And there was an evaluation of patients and clinicians about what some of the barriers were to participate in multidisciplinary care. And self-efficacy uh, came up time and time again, depression, pain intensity, fear of exacerbation, and then health literacy. All of those things I just pointed out to you in the slide before that um, clinicians and patients both point to in terms of limitations and reasons why they don't embrace multidisciplinary care. So these are the multidisciplinary modalities that we're going to go through, and I'm going to introduce a case study to you and show you how we can really apply clinical management, both pharmacological management as well as interventional management in our case, behavioral management. So um, the services, if patient doesn't have insurance or doesn't have the availability to go to a pain psychologist or to a psychiatrist, some of the services that you can access to help those patients at least get some kind of engagement with mental health services, stress reduction, relaxation, the body therapies. Again, physical therapy is fantastic, and I think it's available to most of us um, in, in all communities, but it's understanding what physical therapy is right for your patient, and sometimes you have to know more than the physical therapist in terms of being able to gauge um, your patient who you know and, and get them motivated with physical therapy so they don't get re-hurt, right, which is, again, a fear. And then nutrition. So this is Lisa. This is our 52-year-old fibromyalgia patient, chronic migraines, irritable bowel, mild depression. She's married with a 12-year-old daughter. She was previously employed full-time as a receptionist until she got pregnant, and then she became a stay-at-home mom. Uh, she does not exercise regularly for a whole host of reasons, but she tells you that it's mainly because she's just so fatigued all the time. She can't get energized and motivated. She does see a neurologist for her migraines, but it's her primary care provider that manages her health care maintenance and then her pain symptoms as they arise. And she's underinsured. So underinsurance, so thank God Obamacare, right? Um, because what that did is it allowed a lot more patients to get insured. Damn Obamacare, because what it did is now we have a lot of the patients that are insured, but they're underinsured, so we just don't have the services available to our patients that we would like to be able to do all of these different disciplines, um, engage our patients with these dis disciplines as we'd like to. So most of your insurance, I, most of your patients I would put to you are underinsured. So start thinking in your head, how are we, how are we going to start engaging Lisa? What kind of clinical management modalities are we thinking about? What kind of, how are we going to use behavioral management? Is behavioral, behavioral man, sorry, talking too fast. Is behavioral management appropriate in this clinical scenario, the limited amount of information that I gave you? Mind-body therapies, complementary, and nutrition. 
So clinical management, let's just take some time to explore that. So clinical management, when I think of clinical management, I'm thinking of pharmacological management and then interventional management, right? So what kind of procedures, treatments, um, hands-on injection therapies, and then medications, right? That's probably what the 90% of what we deal with as clinicians when we're thinking about initial management of our patients. And unless there's some interventionalists here in the audience, uh, you don't really, as a clinician, you think more of the medical management, and then you say maybe the patient would be okay for an injection of some sort, but you don't know who to send the patient to, and uh, you don't know necessarily the risks associated with an injection therapy, so maybe you don't even bring it up to the patient. But that's all within the clinical realm. So medications, we have a whole Baskin-Robbins toolbox of pharmacotherapies for our patients, right? We have opiates. We're being encouraged in this day and age to, use, to be less reliant on opiates, but it is still is a potential uh, medication that you can use in the right patient, in the right way, for the right clinical condition. Over-the-counter analgesics, patients are very comfortable with that. Usually patients have tried over-the-counter analgesics uh, before they come into your office. Um, some with good response, some with not so good response. But if they didn't have good response, they don't understand then how uh, over-the-counter analgesics may be complementary to some of the other prescription medications that you um, will uh, consider for them and then and counsel them on. Anticonvulsants, antidepressants, muscle relaxants, um, tips, generics, okay. If I have, and I, I don't do primary um, care for patients, but uh, there's certain medications that maybe you don't want to use generic on, certain heart medications, certain blood thinners. Uh, but for the most part, for our, opiate, for our analgesics, generics are okay. So don't discount generics as something that you can use. Patients always come in, I want the brand name, I want what I saw on the television. And, okay, well, you can't have that, but you can have this instead. Patient assistant programs. Those, that is a way to get your brand name drugs. So all your pharmaceutical companies out there, particularly with new drugs that are on the market, that you really think that my patient's not going to be able to use the newest and the greatest on the market, even if it is the best for them, because there's no way the insurance is going to pay for that or that they're going to be able to afford it. But for your patients that are essentially below the poverty level, and for some of our patients that's not unreasonable, they, they qualify for these patient assistant programs. So knowing that pharmaceutical companies do have good patient assistant programs available, there is a time outlay on your part as well as the patient's part to fill out the documentation, and you need to follow up. But once you do that and you get the patient into the system, you could get the patient a whole year's worth of medications for free. And it is a brand name medication. Samples. Um, how many of you can take samples in your office? Not many of you, a few of you. Um, in academic medicine, we're seeing a lot and loss, less availability to bring samples into our practice. And I think it's just because nobody wants to take control of all of the counting and all of the monitoring that we have to do. But most primary care um, offices, most remote clinics still take um, samples. And so what a great way to introduce your patient. Some, I've, I've worked with some clinicians where they have a patient on a medication and they've never written a prescription for it in their life for that patient. They just continue to get the samples for the patients. I'm not saying that that's the way to do it, but if you want to get a patient started or trialed on a medication and you can have samples in your office, it's a really great resource. Now, how do you get those samples? You need to be familiar with who your local drug reps are. 
right? Don't be afraid of your drug reps. Don't feel bullied by your drug reps, but use them to help you get the services that you need for your patients. Specialty pharmacies, a lot of specialty pharmacies out there um, that can help. So one of the issues that we deal with in my office is the dreaded um, prior authorization. My office staff hates doing it. And they, I, I think sometimes they tell me that it's not authorized just because they don't want to fill out the paperwork. I hate to say that. I know they're doing their jobs. But it's, it's a real belabored task. And you shouldn't have your, your um, other office staff have to always do this for a patient and not be able to do the patient engagement and the other things that they feel um, satisfied to do. So use, know your specialty pharmacies out there and use them. They have the staff available. You know, pharmacy, pharmacies are in business to get your business, right? They're a business. They want to get medications. They want to dispense medications. They have a profit margin. They want, so utilize them as a business. And if they have the staff to do the prior authorizations for you and to do all of the scut work, then use those pharmacies. What I tell my patients is, because I don't want to tell them that they have to use a particular pharmacy just because I said so, but what I do say to them is you have a better chance of getting this medication if I send it to this pharmacy. This pharmacy, because they're competitive, will mail your medications to you. They're pharmacies. They've got good quality control. Do you mind if I send the prescription to that pharmacy as opposed to your CVS or your Walgreens or something that may seem more convenient uh, to really actually get the, get the job done? Here is a slide that just shows you all of the uh, national prescription uh, assistance programs. So there's a lot of them out there, uh, GoodRx, needy meds, uh, medication cards. So all discount cards, again, your patient's probably not going to get the newest drug on the market. Um, that's the most expensive, but we don't need those medications for our patients, right? Regardless of maybe what your local drug up will tell you, don't be bullied, you know, be a partner, use them. Um, so understand that there are a lot of different uh, ways that your patients can get medications um, cheaply and uh, they're reasonable medications, discount uh, pharmacy programs. So let's get back to Lisa. So pharmacotherapy management for Lisa. So Lisa is not on any medications right now. Her primary care provider just manages her episodically um, as her symptoms arise. And we know that fibromyalgia has you know, a whole host of symptoms that, that wax and wane. So I know that pregabalin and duloxetine are both FDA-approved for fibromyalgia. Uh, if I use an FDA-approved medication and I use the right diagnostic code, I should be able to get it covered. Right? They're not brand-new medications, but they are very effective medications for her. Uh, one other thing that you want to do when you're thinking about pharmacotherapy is asking about um, certain, certain symptoms that, that your patient may or may not be experiencing that may help you direct your drug choice. I'll give you an example. So ask about sleep. How's your sleep? A lot of these patients have issues with sleep. Okay, well, what are you using for sleep? Well, I've tried melatonin, I've tried behavioral management, still not working. Well, maybe instead of duloxetine, and the reason I would use duloxetine is because it's a serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. It is FDA approved for fibromyalgia, so those are all good reasons, um, but that's activating. So if sleep is a problem, and I want to take uh, advantage of using something that's got serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibition, well, maybe I'll use nortriptyline, right? 
So nortriptyline tricyclic antidepressant is going to achieve the same end, and I can benefit from the side effect by giving it to her at night with sleep promotion. So unfortunately, um, Lisa's insurance, I, regardless of how hard I tried, I couldn't get her covered for the medications that um, I wanted to initially prescribe. So what we did is we um, went to the Pfizer website, we went to the um, Lilly website, and we found out that the patient qualified um, by, in, by her um, income to, for these programs. And so I filled out my part, she filled out her part, and we were able to get her the medications that she needed. So what's the second um, modality that I introduced to you in terms of clinical management, aside from pharmacotherapy, is procedural management. Don't think that you, primary um, pain clinician, primary care clinician, can't engage in procedural management for your patients. There are a lot of easy um, injection therapies that you can learn that you can actually do on the spot, bill for, and get really good patient compliance if it's effective because then you took their pain away. It may not be lasting, but you took their pain away immediately when they came in. And again, an example of this, this is not sophisticated injection therapies, but your, your chronic migraine patient that comes into the office with a, a flare, a headache flare that just can't be broken, right? So you have a couple of options. You could send them to the emergency room which is not the best option, or you can give them a Toradol injection, right? No, it's not a complicated injection therapy, and that's you know, on the spectrum. But think about things you can do in the office, and if you set up your office appropriately, it's usually easy, and it's fast, and it's reimbursable. You can use ultrasound for some of these injection therapies, and I'll go through them um, in the next couple of slides. But uh, so... Uh, joint injections, right? If you're going to do like an intraarticular knee injection, you can do that without ultrasound. Ultrasound might make you feel more secure. There's a lot of programs out there. I think there's actually in the exhibit hall, I th there's a small little um, ultrasound device that you don't need a big unit. And, uh, and it gives you really good visibility, and you know exactly when you're, where you're going to go. The learning curve is not that steep. And you can do all kinds of injection therapies safely in the office with ultrasound or not with ultrasound. The um, non-ultrasound takes a little bit of uh, more practice. So you've decided, so part of setting up your office to really accommodate for this is knowing what supplies you're going to need, knowing what injection therapies that you're going to do. Um, and you also need to know neural anatomy, and I'll show that on the next couple of slides. But you need to work with your billing department, right? And your billing department could be like one person that comes into your office half-time that helps you with your billing. But they need to understand how you can bill for these procedures, again, to make it a lot more effective and, and easy throughput for your office. But uh, very patient-satisfying and then potentially very lucrative for you. If you choose not to do any injection therapies in your office, that's okay, too. It's important for you to understand, though, what injection therapies may be appropriate for your patient with a certain diagnosis. And if you don't want to engage in that, you just don't want to bother with it, know who your, your interventionalists out in the community are, right? Who can you send that patient to if they need an epidural steroid injection? Who can you send that patient to if they need a facet block or an SI joint injection? If you know who they are, you take them out to coffee, you develop a good relationship with them, you 
tell your patients you're going to refer to this clinician because you know how they practice and you think that they can uh, do a good job for your patient, your patient will feel a lot more comfortable going into a office that you referred them to. Uh, and if you have a good relationship with your patient to begin with, it just, again, increases that trust that that patient has. It's good to refer, right? Because then you get referrals back to you. So that's always good for business. If you know who the um, community interventionalists are, you also will be able to discuss with them, what do you need? If I'm going to send a patient to you for a lumbar epidural injection, do you want an MRI first? Do you want a CAT scan first? Do you want an X-ray first? And they say yes, or they say no. But if they say yes, then it may take a month to get, it into, get the patient into that referral center. So during that month, you get the imaging done, and then the, the patient is referred, a diagnosis is made, and treatment's offered, and you don't have to wait, again, another month or three months, depending on your insurance, to get the appropriate diagnostic studies. So we work together as a team, right? I mean, it's all about team care for our patients. All right, have any of you been to Body Worlds ever? Okay. If you haven't, the Luxor, I think, has a nice uh, exhibit. Um, and I encourage you to go. Any anatomists in the room? It's a nervous system. It's fascinating. So if there's a nerve, there's a way I can inject it. That's oversimplified. But it's not, it's not just about... Um, dermatones associated with the spinal nerves, right? So not all leg pain is peripheral back pain, although sometimes it is. So you need to, you need to understand what neural anatomy, what neuroanatomy is, peripheral nerves in particular. I think we're pretty all um, good at understanding spinal nerve kind of distributions and, and what that picture looks like. But it will help with your referral source. So if you really feel someone's got a tarsal tunnel syndrome or they've got a carpal tunnel syndrome uh, versus a brachial plexopathy, right? understanding that there's all kinds of nerves in the body that get pinched or after surgery have gotten cut and didn't heal appropriately because tissue around it's caused a neuroma. So don't send patients to just to a interventionalist without really having a thought about, you know, is this the right treatment? You know, how much time and money and effort and patient just dissatisfaction is sent, um, spent by sending patients for injection therapies that just aren't going to be effective, right? So, it, and if you have a better idea of neuroanatomy, then you're going to be able to uh, choose the right procedure. You're going to know if it's something, can you inject for carpal tunnel in your office? Yes, you can. It's very easy. And again, very satisfying for the patient. Is it going to last if you do a carpal tunnel um, injection for them and relieve that, that pain and that pressure? Probably not, you know. But then you give them pain relief and you set them up for physical therapy and then you decide if they need to go have surgery. But again, you're directing that care for them and you're helping your patient. So joint injections, um, various types of um, nerve blocks that we can do for head and face pain, upper extremity. Again, I'm not going to belabor this slide, but that it's, it's all for you, realizing that it's not all about just the joint injection or just the epidural injection. Trigger point injections. How many of you have done trigger point injections in your office? Right? Right? And don't patients love you? Right? How many of you have the ability to do trigger point injections in the office and then give them either the education to go home and stretch that day while they're numb or be able to send them up to physical therapy right away? Right? 
How many of you do like educate them that once I relieve that muscle spasm, or do dry needling? How many of you do dry needling, right? And then tell them to stretch, right? I know you all do because you're good clinicians. But you have to then engage the patient to be, once they feel better, then they need to be able to go ahead and move. How many of you use Botox, inject, uh, Botox in your trigger point injections? Okay. How many of you knew that you couldn't use Botox in your trigger point injections? It's not, I mean, it's not covered usually. <laughs> you, have to make, you have to make the argument for it. But um, what the Botox does is it will give you longevity of, of um, reduction of muscle spasm in that muscle. So some patients, regardless of how much um, stretching and movement that they do, they've just got such a tight band of muscles that, that they're, it's just going to you know, seize up on them within like, 12 to 24 hours. Um, so you, put, you can put Botox in that muscle, and patients may get three or six months. They still need to do their activities and exercises and stretching, but they can get a lot more uh, utility after, out of that one inje- injection. We'll back to Lisa. So... We talked about the clinical uh, pharmaceutical management. Now, um, what are we thinking about interventional management for her from what we know, right? Well, we know she has migraines, chronic migraines. Her neurologist may have introduced her to Botox preempt injection, but a fantastic treatment that you can do in the office, you know, you primary care, you non-neurologists, you just need training, you need to understand, you need to be able to diagnose chronic migraine appropriately. Um, but a very effective treatment. And this winds up being really good for patients um, that have headaches that one of their triggers is cervicalgia or a lot of cervical muscle spasm. And if you do the Botox for the preempt and you have a little bit over and you can put it in other little muscle groups that are helpful, then that's not a bad thing either. Um, Okay, I think that's all I'm going to say about that. So setting expectations for interventional management. So one of the kind of one of the downsides and one of the problems with interventional management is that you don't want patients to get reliant on a procedure. You you really want to engage your patient in um, self-control, self-efficacy, therapies, uh, self-management. And one of the things that um, clinicians can fall into a trap of, and particularly interventionalists, is they're the ones that are doing all of the therapies to the patient and takes away the patient's um, need to self-manage. So utilize interventional therapies as appropriate, but realize it's part of the tool, and it's not that you're just going to keep putting needles into patients, and that's going to be the only way that they're going to get better, feel better, and become reliant on you. I think some, even the best um, empathetic clinician, you want to help patients, you want to do things for them, but I think you get into this pattern where you're just continuing to do things for them because you want them to get better, and you forget that really, how many are parents in this room? Right? How many of you always want to just kind of help your little, you know, Johnny or Jane along? The hardest thing as a parent is to just kind of let go and let them you know, manage, because that's how they learn. And that's the only way that patients chronically, chronic pain are going are gonna to get better and continue to uh, have a quality of life. Behavioral management. Some of the mostly truths, some of these are more true than others. Uh, insurance really, really covers uh, behavioral management therapies, right? It, it, it really doesn't. Some, some do, um, but for the most part, particularly with our underinsured, it's going to be really difficult to get behavioral management services. You have to keep in mind that it's not all about just the psychologist or the psychiatrist. So there's a lot of other mental health workers out there, that you, social workers, that you can utilize 
um, and you have to understand their value. So if a patient doesn't have insurance, it's gonna let them go to a psychiatrist or a, a psychologist or a pain psychologist, then understand that maybe social work or group therapies um, are covered by their insurance. It um, often will require an individual treatment plan. So most patients, at least initially, Need you need to focus your treatment plan and who you're sending your patients to for mental health services based on their needs. So a lot of patients with anxiety uh, or fear avoidance really don't like to be in group settings. So that needs to be tailored. And it could require a lifelong investment, and that's okay. I wish I had a little psychologist that I could carry around in my pocket all the time, right? We all have issues that we deal with. Um, some more than others, and we continue to have, it's just part of who we are. So it's okay to say to a patient, you know, you may have to continue to go back. You know, maybe you're just checking in every three months, but, you know, it's something that you need to be continuously conscious about the behavioral management and the mental health needs that you may have dealing with your chronic pain um, condition. So there are lots of different therapists, and I just went through this, but when we talk about mental health services, there's a lot of different therapists that you can consider. So it's not just the psychiatrist. But if you are fortunate enough to be able to engage your patients with psychiatry for medical management, and if you have a patient that has um, severe mental illness or severe depression, it's exactly what you want to do. But also a psychologist or somebody that is going to be a therapist or a counselor to them. And it's not available in all settings, but we do have fellowships in pain psychology. So if you can find a psychologist that understands chronic pain or chronic disease, that would be like the holy grail, right? That would be the best of all, of all um, situations. Um, and like I mentioned, realize that you have your social workers and your other um, there's also uh, patient advocates that have gone through training but have dealt with some of the similar situations that your patient has dealt with. And sometimes that peer-to-peer -peer, uh, engagement can be very um, therapeutic for a patient. And we're going to spend some time talking about the plethora of online resources for your patients. I don't know if this is true any, any longer, but at some particular time in the UK, again, everybody has limited resources, they were doing a lot of their mild um, to moderate healthcare, mental health needs online, right? So you would go in to see your GP and maybe you need, you know, you just, you need some counseling or you need some direction. And their mental health services really started with those online consultations and then patient education. And I haven't followed up to see, A, if they're doing that any longer, but I thought that that was really innovative. I'm like, why don't we do something like that, right? Instead, we just say, can't, sorry, insurance doesn't cover it. You know, I don't know what else to, to help you with. Um, so this is just a, a resource for you. So if you are interested in looking at what um, pain psychologists, boarded pain psychologists are in your community, there's that website at the very bottom, uh, pain psychology today that may help in your region help you, you know, find out who is actually board certified or who has a specialty in, in pain. And then the Northern California Association of Pain Psychologists is actually a really nice resource for you um, that live in, work in California. So these are some, um, so anytime you're going to manage a, a patient, you're going to take on that management of chronic pain, and, and, and I would encourage all of us to do that because all patients have pain. It's not always easy to get patients into a specialty center like we have at Stanford. 
start with education, right? And I would encourage you, if you're going to start with the education to the patient about what chronic pain, what chronic disease is, that you watch these videos yourself so you know the education that they're getting. But you can just start there. And, and you could even bring a patient into your office while you're seeing the three or four other patients in the other um, offices and sit them down with a television screen or uh, internet and have them watch this video. This would be the introduction to them. And these are really nice quality videos. Stanford has a, a, a number of them. You have access to them. Your patients have access to them at home. But they need to know, they need you to know that they're available and then to introduce them to them. And then you can give patients homework, right? You make your patient accountable. I asked you to watch this video, to read this article. So now, how, what did you do? What did you learn? How can we then apply that? Was it helpful? Here's some stress reduction resources for you. Again, these are all lovely internet, so you could access these anywhere, right? You could access these in Canada. You can access these in Mexico. You can access these in the UK. They're free for you for your patients. Can't get my patient cognitive behavioral therapy. Can't get my patient act treatment. I can't, um, patient can't afford the mindfulness-based um, stress reduction. Patient can't afford the $5 for the, um, the book on mindfulness stress reduction. Send them to the internet. A lot of good apps available for you as well. So maybe your younger patients, particularly with their uh, mobile devices, are a lot more interested in using apps. Uh, once they're introduced to them, there's free apps out there. They know how to use them. Um, they're easy. Maybe using apps for flare pain, right? Our mobile devices are mobile. They, we can use them, not in the car, not, not while we're driving, but you know, at times where you need that 15 minutes away from you know, your work or your child or whatever it is to engage in that. All right, I'm gonna take uh, about a minute and show you. How many of you are familiar with um, Headspace? Right. Do you use it? Do you use it for yourselves? It's a great video and, um, and entertaining, engaging. So I'm just gonna run through that real quick. Some days meditation will feel easy. On others, it might feel difficult. The trick is to gently stay with it each time, no matter how it feels. Look for a place in your routine where this exercise can slot in easily. Research shows it's easier to create a new habit when we do it at about the same time each day. We recommend doing it first thing in the morning, but you might need to be flexible with that. Find somewhere you won't be disturbed. Don't worry too much about background noise. I'll explain how to deal with that. But it might be easier at first if you have some peace and quiet. Make sure you're sitting comfortably before you start. Unless you're used to sitting cross-legged on the floor, I'd recommend using a chair. Sit with your legs and arms uncrossed, feet flat on the floor, and hands resting in your lap or on your legs. Try to keep your back straight, but not too tense. If you need it, a small cushion or a rolled up towel under your backside will help keep your back straight. And that's it. You're now ready to get some headspace. So how many of you just kind of sat up a little bit straighter when you did that? How many of your patients would be interested in that, right? It's engaging, it's cute, they can watch it any time. 
Resources, online resources for sleep improvement. We know that sleep is an issue for our patients. So we do all the counseling um, about what they can do to decrease stimuli, to not take their mobile devices into bed with them, uh, to use melatonin and such. But there are also cognitive behavioral therapies online that they can get access to. And I just mentioned this already, the ACT um, uh, app, uh, which is actually uh, put out by the VA, is really effective. And just, again, these are all for your reference, for your resources, some of the things that you think might be interested, um, your patients might be interested in, that would be appropriate for your practice, engage in them. Uh, Friesen uh, and Associates in 2017 um, so this, this, again, all sounds really good, right? But where is the data that shows us that this is really effective and this is going to work for our patients, and why is it important? So Friesen uh, and Associates in 2017 uh, wanted to look at the, um, the utility of an Internet-developed uh, cognitive behavioral program uh, for patients. And they, they took 60 participants, randomized them, um, 30 to the pink horse and 30 to um, standard care or waitlist group, essentially no treatment. And it was a five-lesson course delivered over eight weeks, brief contact with patients, right, via a telephone, and it didn't necessarily need to be a clinician, to guide them through the course and essentially just motivate them to watch the course and to keep on track. And uh, they assessed them pre a post, and then a four-week follow-up. And what they found is modest results, not great. We're not looking at 50, 60, 70% you know, improvement. But you know, 20 to 20 to 30% improvement in global reduction of symptoms, reduction of depression, pain, fear, avoidance. And the changes were maintained for four weeks. Now, they didn't take it out farther than that, so maybe the patients relapsed, but then you reintroduce this, right? You have to continue to encourage your patients to utilize these services, particularly at times where things are maybe worse than others. Another study by Rod and Associates looking at 200 patients at a Toronto-based clinic, looking at... um, uh, dividing patients into placebo versus treatment groups and encourage them to use two internet slide, sites, one blog site and one Twitter posting that was developed by the, um, the researcher. And it talked to patients about things like exercise, nutrition, mindfulness meditation. Patients kept activity logs. And what they found, I don't know um, if this is real visible to you, but it should be in your slide deck later on, the patients that were the most severe, had the symptoms that were the most severe, did get some improvement, not clinically significant, but maybe anywhere from 10 to 20% improvement over the time that they were doing these modules and, and blog sites and getting educated. But your moderate to severe patients, there was significant reduction in symptoms, you know, 50, 60%. And all uh, participants reported up to a 60% uh, reduction in, in change, in global impression of change. So it's meaningful, right? There's research behind it. And, and I think, again, we instinctively know that multidisciplinary care is important. That's why you're here to learn about multidisciplinary care. But there's also data to back that up. So back to Lisa, how are we going to manage her behavioral management needs? We're going to tell her about Headspace app. We're going to give her some resources to just learn about chronic disease because she's never been to a pain clinic. She's been to her neurologist that probably just does interventions on her or gives her medications, but she doesn't really realize how the global symptoms that she's experiencing may take different modalities to manage her. And then Shut Eye, which is a cognitive behavioral app uh, program for uh, sleep. Assign homework, keep it simple, hold patients accountable. 
It's the only way that you're going to encourage them to engage in their uh, treatment plan. So why is it important? Why are behavioral therapies important? Behavioral therapies are important because, excuse me, um, body therapies are important because the, the body's meant to move. It improves circulation. It improves mood, endorphin release. So if you are really good at your pharmacotherapy, your clinical management, you talk to your patients about mood, but your patients don't get up and move, they're not going to ultimately get better. And why don't patients want to get up and move? They use the excuse of time. Uh, they use the excuse of fatigue, but it's more because of fear. And so sometimes the easiest way to re-engage a patient that has been um, non-physically active for years is to write a real simple guided physical therapy prescription, send them out to a therapist just so that if they do have pain when they're moving, that the therapist can then gently guide them into safer movements, and then you grate their movements over time. You grate them. You have them then continue to um, advance, and their advancement over time could be as you know, short of a duration as two to four weeks, or it may take them two to four years, right? We have a patient, I don't know how many went, of you went to the lecture on the carrot and the stick at 7 a.m., was it yesterday or the day before yesterday? The day before yesterday. Pain psychologist, physical therapist. What you're seeing, the trend, is really that those two, um, inter- those two disciplines are working together to manage patients that have a huge fear avoidance um, to deal with the, the emotional um, setbacks that they have about moving, and then the physical therapist being able to gently guide them into movement. Very effective in, in pa- getting patients moving. Uh, the fear avoidance model, this just really speaks to the fact that there is really this phenomenon that patients are fearful of moving, then they don't move, then it hurts to move, and that is just you know, puts them into the cycle where they won't improve, they won't continue to um, get better, and you really need to then take a step back and realize it may take years before you actually make the physical gains in these patients, but they need to move. Uh, resources for you for mind-body therapies, again, a lot of good YouTube videos. Um, a couple actually in the slide deck that you'll have access to that we don't have time to watch today, but if patients can have a visual, you can tell them what to do. You can give them a piece of paper. But if they have a visual and they can kind of um, do that as they're being guided by a video, that they feel a lot more comfortable. So not all therapies are consi- um, con- uh, considered equal. You need to tailor your behavioral man, your physical therapy, uh, body movements to the needs of your patient. Right? So if you have a patient that hasn't moved for two years, you're not going to tell them that they need to go and start training for a marathon. I mean, it sounds reasonable, right? You also need to know that not all yoga, not all tai chi, not, not all um, physical activities are the same. So yoga sounds simple. You know, most patients think that yoga would be something that would be gentle on them. Not necessarily so. So just tailor it to your patient's needs. I'm not going to, these are two videos that I'm just going to go through, but they're for you, and that will put you to sleep. So one of the things I do in my practice um, to try and get away from all of the excuses I hear from patients, I don't have transport, I can't, you know, get there, I don't know, you know, I don't know what, I would love to do physical therapy, I would love to do acupuncture, I would love to do biofeedback, but I just don't have the, the resources to do that. 
is I will take the time up front to really find out what resources are in my community and just put it on a piece of paper that then I give them with their discharge instructions. And again, give them homework. So these are a list of low-cost integrative medicine therapies in my community in the Bay Area. So I, I don't know why this is, but in the Bay Area, we have like five schools of acupuncture. And that's great for me. I don't know. Maybe they just like being in the Bay Area. But um, so that's where I will send my patients. You know, I'll give them the information on how to get ready wheels. I'll um, tell them that it's fee-based, so uh, it's really according to their needs. So if they don't make any money, maybe they get acupuncture for free. They're going to get a lot of attention. Um, and again, I would encourage you to go and check out the facility for yourself before you send your patients there, but realize that they're available to you. All online resources, another handout that I give to patients, and then um, all public transport um, options. All right, so we're going to go through just a couple more studies and then uh, get you out of here to go to breakfast. This was a systemic review and meta-analysis um, that was published, again, just last year, looking at um, the difference between uh, painful exercise versus non-painful exercise. So I just got through telling you that patients avoid, they have a fear avoidance because they don't want to get hurt. They don't know if they're, what they're doing has a sinister meaning to them and they're going to cause themselves further pain and uh, dysfunction. So what this study did is it looked at painful exercise versus non-painful exercise. And what they found was in the subset of patients with musculoskeletal pain that um, having a little pain initially was not necessarily a negative outcome. But really, um, it actually continued to get patients uh, um, engaged. And as long as you have good instruction from the practitioner encouraging the physical therapy or directing the physical therapy, patients felt um, more comfortable and they were continuing uh, to advance. But this didn't hold out for the long term. So uh, patients initially with a little bit of painful exercise continued, they didn't stop, but uh, really over the long term, it's more of a graded gradual exercise um, program that you want to encourage patients to uh, engage in. So back to Lisa. So what we did is we decided to refer her to a community physical therapist just to get reengaged, to get educated, to learn some safe exercises. You problem solved with her about the barriers, um, transport, time, simple things that she could do, the rationale for getting her involved with a community therapist initially. And you make it simple, achievable. You review pacing. Again, you're not going to have to go train for a marathon, but I want you to be able to get up and walk around the block, you know, at least twice a week, if not a couple of times a day. And we set goals, right? And it's okay to, if she didn't meet goal one week, to then extend that goal, but hold patients accountable for um, their activities. Nutrition and pain. Um, there's a lot out there in the general literature about nutrition and pain. And Heather Tick gave a very interesting lecture uh, last year on nutrition and pain that got me fascinated about, by, about the topic. She's not here, unfortunately, this year, but if you do come back next year and she happens to be here, um, go to her lecture. So there, there, it really kind of focuses on anti-inflammatory diets, right? And you can educate your patients about anti-inflammatory diets. There's books out there. We know that, high, that diets are high um, in inflammatory, simple sugars, um, uh, simple carbohydrates that 
it's just not good for health. And so if patients have a lot of inflammation going on internally, then their pain is uh, less managed, they don't feel good, they have less resolve. So encouraging patients to have to look at their diets and you look at the, them with them, have them write a diet history, bring it in. And the objective is to look at low uh, inflammatory diets, low allergenic diets, a lot of um, gluten intolerance, maybe not celiac disease, but a lot of gluten intolerance. There's actually a diagnosis of gluten neuropathy that um, I had no idea existed. Our neurology colleagues might. Um, and those patients that if you just reduce the gluten or take gluten out of their diet, the neuropathies go away. So there's a lot to do with nutrition and pain and ways of improving patients' nutrition that actually is going to have positive outcomes, and it's things that they can do on their own. Heather Tick talks a lot about it. She's big on social media. So if you want to know more about the topic, go in and uh, do some research by looking at her sites. Complementary therapies, there again, lots of apps, um, websites that patients can go to, education books that they can get about um, biofeedback um, uh, and acupuncture and things like that. Self-care videos, guided imagery. Um, one thing that you probably haven't thought about, I think about it because I'm in an academic medical practice, um, but there's a lot of clinical trials in pain and other disease states nationally that go on. How do you find access to that? My patients, because they're in the facility that, that I'm in, will come and say, what's the latest and the greatest? What is Stanford doing research on now? And I say, well, I'm going to have you come back and talk to Sean Mackey because he can tell you. But there's a lot of national clinical trials going on. So here's some sites that you can encourage your patients to go to. You can go. Do you have a patient that's got um, something simple as low back pain, something simple as a trial of a new medication for X or a nutrient for X, or something very complicated, a pain scenario that nobody's ever heard about? There's probably a clinical trial to address that. Not all patients have to be in the sites where the um, study uh, PI is. Sometimes they can be uh, remotely involved in trials, but patients like to be involved with clinical trials because it really gives them a purpose, right? Even, even if they don't think that the trial is going to help them, they're helping somebody else. And again, it gives them self-efficacy. So um, some, one site that I didn't list up here is clinicaltrials.gov, and that's all the, of the government, national government um, trials available out there. So for her nutritional and complementary needs, what we did for Lisa is we um, encouraged her to start a food diary because she really wasn't even thinking about how food was affecting her migraines, her fibromyalgia, um, and then that set the tone for us to be able to educate her. She also had some irritable bowel and fatigue. Again, the fatigue might have been just because she's eating on the fly. She doesn't have a lot of time to really pay attention to her diet. She's using fast food. You know, she's got a little one, so probably a lot of high sugar uh, content in her diet. Gave her resources for low-cost acupuncture, recommended self-help books, which uh, she was very interested in. And really, it's all about the education and being able to guide patients into what's available because your patients don't know. This was a study that was published uh, a couple years back, and it looked at a group of um, clinicians as well as patients and grouped them together. And it was um, it, it, the... The model was called the step care model uh, for pain management. 
And really what they uh, did is, again, in a remote um, scenario, introduced patients as well as clinicians to uh, appropriate uh, assessment of pain, uh, utilization of medications, particularly opiates. They were really um, interested to see how opiate use would change with this guidance. Um, they had a, um, a specialty group of on-site resources um, that they were able to educate the patients about, and then a lot of the intervention took place in a telehealth consultation. So again, you didn't need the patient in the um, or the clinician in the um, physical space in order to uh, be part of the study. And the results that they found, modest 11%, so you know, just a little over 10% um, of the providers that engaged in this, um, this model of care said that they had increased um, knowledge about um, uh, pain in general, that um, the self-confidence rating um, and the ability to manage pain um, was increased. The use of opiates um, decreased by greater than 20%, as well as the use of uh, opiate treatment agreements, drug screenings, and uh, there was a modest increase in referrals to mental health providers. So again, both patients as well as clinicians realized the importance of mental health services during this intervention and that we're a lot more willing to refer. Another study on a, a similar um, framework of uh, treatment, but a smaller, much smaller uh, sample size. So this was the ECHO project, looked at a group of 20 um, uh, primary care providers. So this was primary care provider based and divided them into placebo uh, versus uh, uh, intervention group. And uh, what they did was they uh, exposed primary care providers, so not pain clinicians, over 48 weeks, so a pretty extensive period of time that they exposed them to the study paradigm, um, and had them sit in um, focus groups and gave them surveys about their knowledge of pain, uh, self-efficacy, and the importance of that for patients, and then um, also looking at kind of the opiate prescribing and specialty referrals. What they found was primary care providers uh, in uh, the intervention had a significantly increased um, self-efficacy um, and comfort in diagnosing pain, but also in referral and treatment. And when they knew how to use opiate assessment tools and proper screening, that they were more willing to engage in it, and then overall that their uh, opiate prescribing decreased. All right. So I talked to you about the clinical trials. This is also another good resource. So there's a lot of um, patient advocacy groups out there for different disease, particularly chronic pain, fibromyalgia, um, and, and such complex regional pain syndrome. So get your patients, again, involved in going to these sites, um, getting engaged with not only um, you know, talking to their peers online, but then maybe finding local programs uh, for them. All right, so in summary, we talked about the importance uh, and challenge of incorporating multidisciplinary, multimodal care into a community pain uh, practice or into uh, community pain management, regardless if you're a pain specialist or a primary care clinician. Uh, I gave you some of the evidence-based rationale for recommending these therapies um, and all of the online tools available. We talked about tips for improving outcomes and then your low-cost or free resources. So I want to thank you. I know we're just... Uh, like five minutes over for your time. I'm happy. I know that you need to go get in line so you can get breakfast, but um, I'm happy to stay and answer any questions. And I'm here for the rest of the conference. And so, you know, please look me up, email me if you have any questions. Thank you for your time.